what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Si Martin is an author, historian, journalist and teacher specialising in black British history and literature. He's published a number of books of historical fiction and non-fiction for adult and teenage readers, including Incomparable World in 1996, which charted the fate of three black exiles living in 18th century London, and Britain's Slave Trade, which was written for Channel 4 to tie in with its four-part documentary series Windrush. For many decades, Si Martin has worked hard to bring diverse histories to wider audiences working with and for a number of notable museums and archives, including the Black Cultural Archives, Tate Britain and the V&A. Most importantly, of course, he's a patron of Humanists UK. S.I. Martin, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Pleasure to be here. Now, I thought we'd start um, with something that I know is a, a great passion for you, and it's not something that anyone else has talked about as a great passion on, on our podcast before, although I think, you know, hopefully it, it should be, which is archives. And yes. not many people can say that the great passion of their life is archives, but I think you probably would from what I've read of, of, of your beliefs. Why is that? Why, why, why should we all care? Why do yeah. you care about it? Certainly one of my big passions, um, the reason I care about it is because I like things that can be verified. I like to have you know, provable stuff in my life. Um, you know, clearly, my interest in history is connected to the histories of people of African and Caribbean origin. Mm. But um, in order to uh, substantiate my positions and basically to have um, a comfort zone um, um, with this material, yes, I like the presence of documents, tabulated information, uh, some factual basis, some way to frame arguments, and something to talk about uh, multiply and reference multiply. Uh, it just creates a comfort zone for me. So the fact that it's reliable and referenceable and material? Not necessarily reliable, okay. <laughs> but it's, there can, you can have points um, that you can you know, make relationships with and through. Um, it's something to actually talk about and uh, create a framework uh, for dealing with life. That's interesting. So is something intrinsic to, to archives and what you can get out of them that makes you um, love them so much? It's that they're, they're evidence, they're there, they're material. And yeah. moreover, um, to a significant degree, it's, um, uh, uh, it belongs to the public. Significant okay. bodies of archived material in these islands, we pay for them, we support them, and they are about us, they're about our lives. And of course, if you're incredibly nosy, like I am, it's just <laughs> Wonderful insights into all sorts of weird byways in other people's existences in other times. Is the common ownership of archives, you've related the common ownership of archives there to, in a sense, our common ownership of history and who we are. Is that is that right? That's exactly what it is. And it prompts us to engage in a really immediate and personal way. 
just on the most prosaic levels of the histories of the properties that we live in, of our streets, of our neighborhoods, of our schools. All of this information is there about us. It's there um, about um, our forebears, those of us who have forebears in these islands. Mm. And this is, nowadays, it's at the click of a mouse or a visit to a particular archive. Mm. Yeah. Accessibility, then, that's an important thing to you as well. Yes, and it is accessible to you. And you know, making sure that um, as many people no as possible uh, know that this material is there and that we pay for it and it's about us. So it sounds like you like archives sort of uh, for their material usefulness, but you also like them for their sort of what they represent socially, their spiritual power almost. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> maybe I wouldn't not use that, that word, not that word, not yet, but their. But, um, Yes, it, it's what they represent. The, yes, it's the ability to link us, um, each other and ourselves, to centre ourselves and to be linked one to another in a meaningful way and to have serious conversations about um, these relationships as well. And is that the same sort of thing that you think about history? I mean, do you think about history as being at least in part that and that um, that way in which we can connect ourselves? Ideally, yes, but on a more honest level, I mm. think it's a, they provide wonderful frameworks for great arguments. <laughs> and just um, uh, the more controversial, the better. Um, again, it's about how we describe ourselves, um, who do we think we are, and why we think or believe uh, we are these things. And I think, of course, that's an infinite set of discussions, but um, the more grist to the mill and the more controversial, um, the better. I, I really do enjoy, uh, especially you know, talking to people I say were diametrically, uh, uh, you know, my polar opposites in terms of uh, all my positions. Um, this is what I think. Why I think history is really important. You really are challenged constantly, and you can challenge others. Well, we'll come back to that. I think that's uh, talking to your opposite people who believe the opposite, because that's a very interesting concept. Oh. But um, the it sounds like from your description of history so far that um, you're, well, I mean, let me ask you, let me pose it as a question. Are you, are you in it to find out what's true or, or are you in it to find out different stories, different perspectives, look at things through different frames and maybe argue about, maybe in a never ending sense uh, about what might or might not be true? Because I know there's two different yeah. positions for people who, you know, some people go to history, yeah, I mean, right, let's find out what's real. Other people yeah. have a different view. No, the idea of having a finite conversation which leads to a fixed body of opinions and thoughts, it doesn't make sense to me, and it's not my, uh, per, not to my personal taste. Or, and intellectually, I just think it's... Um, I don't see the point in it. <laughs> well, Why is that, do you think? Unless we're a power-mad lunatic you know, who just want to have dominion <laughs> the past. over bodies, yeah, over bodies yeah. of opinion, yeah. um, then it doesn't serve any other function. Um, so for me, it's important to keep the discussions alive and to keep things not necessarily moving forward, but moving, to keep the, um, uh, you know, the kettle boiling because a lot of interesting steam is produced. And we also miss out on so much by just moving towards those fixed and set views and opinions. Where do you think that attitude comes from for you, that, that commitment, oh, that perspective? Oh, definitely from uh, my upbringing, severally. I mean, my parents um, 
um, arrived in these islands in the late 1950s, early 1960s, mm. coming from Antigua in the West Indies. Mm. Um, they were both uh, brought up in a very, um, yes, in, in, in a very anglicized way. Um, they respected institutions, established authorities. Um, my mother, at least, was a genuine professing Christian, probably the most professing Christian I've ever encountered. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my father, by habit. Um, but I think this comes from, again, for my partly, again, for my father, who always made a point of exposing us to as broad a range of opinions and tastes as possible. Mm. I mean, we would have, for example, musically, all sorts of, um, you know, sort of uh, the uh, quite disreputable reggae tunes from the 1960s and 70s being played. Um, oh, at really? the same time, oh, yes. When at you the were same a child. Time, yes, when I was a child. At the mm. same time, um, you know, Handel. Tchaikovsky <laughs> and uh, Jim Reeves and you know we'd buy on a Sunday um, the Observer but we'd also get um, the news of the world mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the people so I like I was trained literally in how enjoying that breadth of opinion you know the notion that there aren't any what do they call it nowadays uh, guilty pleasures yeah. <laughs> there aren't any guilty <laughs> pleasures for everything um, uh, can be used and enjoyed and should be. And you believe in the value of being exposed to that diversity? Absolutely. Mm. Um, we are missing out. Literally, people are culturally deprived who, I would say, <clears throat> not to talk about anyone's dietary habits, but speaking as a carnivore, I'd say <laughs> one is culturally deprived if um, you don't enjoy the odd Greggs now and again. Or <laughs> you, don't you can have a vegan sausage roll, you know. Not. You can have a vegan sausage yeah. roll these days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but the idea of um, excluding oneself from uh, pleasures, even just to say that, no, that's not your cup of tea. Mm. But um, again, that whole idea of having fixed positions. Mm. Mm. Yeah, why? But why do you think that's important? I mean, exposing yourself to this diversity, exploring different pleasures, going high and low, that's pejorative, you know what I mean? Going broad, let's say, mm-hmm. going broad, not high and low, going broad. Um, what's the, are you in that for the, just for the existential experience of it, or is there an outcome to all of that? In, in, both, in, in, really. Both, okay. T- yeah, tell me about that. Obviously, I, I enjoy um, a variety of things, you know, in a really visceral way. It's important to me. But on mm. the other hand, you can get insights into um, other people's values and um, mm. what compels them. Um, yeah, I mean, part of my practice as well is as um, occasionally writing fiction. Mm. Um, oh, yes, very good fiction. I'm also, I'm also interested in that. And trying to get into the minds of, say, someone who is trading in human lives Mm. in um, the late 18th century. I think it's important. (laughs) We can't just come to absolute conclusions about from, I hate these people, but you can't come to Mm. any other um, connection to them without having some sort of uh, feel of their world Mm. or trying to imagine their world. And ultimately, I think that's where we all sort of come together, can do, in the world of... um, um, the imagine the imagination 
and that's bringing us back then is it just to push a little bit more behind that and the purpose of that in your mind then it seems to brought us back again to that desire to connect with and understand other people the same as through history but now you're talking about through imagination and experience is that and yes. is that a value for you to connect with others Absolutely. is there something intrinsically valuable about that for you well, I'd say not just for me. I'd say for us all, as uh, mammals, yes, as uh, you know, <clears throat> yeah, as vertebrates, we mm. have the ability. I'd say, without pushing it too far, the enhanced ability to cultivate empathy, and art goes a long way towards that. From the most basic shared jokes um, <clears throat> in a bus queue to uh, enjoying uh, great pieces of music wonderful paintings, and uh, particularly for me, uh, fiction, and uh, mm. trying, you know, sharing those um, most personal insights through that. So just to enhance empathy and uh, develop empathy, um, you know, art is always um, the enemy in authoritarian states. It mm. must be controlled. Mm. It must be policed. And, um, yeah. What do you get out of empathising with a slaver, though? Is it that you just get a broader understanding of people generally, or are there actually some things about the mindset of a slaver that you want to understand for some reason? Yes, there are. Um, what it, I mean, to put now we're having this particular conversation, Andrew, I'll yeah. have to go there. Um, yeah, let's. I'm interested <laughs> in the mind of um, a slaver, someone who trades in human lives to the degree, same degree that I'm interested in someone who, for example, um, not doesn't just believe in the concept of uh, chosen people, mm. the elect, the damned, <laughs> eternal mm. torture. Mm. Um, I, I, it, for me, it's part of the same. It's something which I don't immediately identify with, hence my curiosity about it. In fact, I can't really identify with it. But no. I think it's important to try and get some sort of hold, grip on who we are actually dealing with. Um, because... <laughs> Those of us, I'm wandering slightly, but I'm no, still no, please, wandering around the point. Um, because those of us particularly who are either centre, centre-left, basically those of us who are not far right, have <laughs> this massive gap in our comprehension of neurodiversity. Mm. Um, in a sense, we are not at all diverse mm. <laughs> in our realisation and understanding and acceptance of uh, depravity, what we would call depravity, mm. uh, which for many people is um, the norm. Mm. And hence my fascination with um, extremists, mm. uh, my fascination particularly with that period of enslavement, uh, how people could situate themselves within it without making excuses about it, how um, extreme right-wing Christians can create a comfort zone for themselves within uh, the most depraved mm. <laughs> belief mm. systems and anti-human belief systems. And I think that's very important because, you know, it helps us to arm ourselves um, uh, 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 against their pretty weak arguments, <laughs> but it does right. help us to argue and see where they're coming from. Yeah. So you don't want to understand them to tolerate them. You want to understand them to counter them. No. Uh, no. Yes. <laughs> yes. You want, want to tolerate to them in, in that you yes. want, to, obviously, to let them exist, but... Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I don't actually want to murder them. Or no, no, them. I didn't mean tolerate as in they're, they're beyond the pale they're out. To... <laughs> no. <laughs> but, um, yes, they have to be countered. And, mm. um, 
without having those tools or developing those tools, um, we are we we we're always on the back foot, as I think the non far right is currently on very much on the back foot, because we've come to this body of opinions which um, assumes that progress is a natural be good that having human unity fellowship and understanding is the end goal which broadly i accept but that position significantly um downplays the role of um depravity i keep going back to that word Mm, mm. because it's an interesting concept and it's alien to um most of our uh, ways of life Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. So where do you think then this 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 these habits of depravity in other people come from if they're not as it were um well what do you think they are are they just the, the natural outcome of something or has something gone wrong in society or the conditions that you could change where is it coming from this thing that you want to um that you've named and you want to counter Yes this is becoming it sounds like an exorcism <laughs> get it all out get it all out Steve because that's what this is about we want to know yeah. what you really believe <laughs> um, so yeah I mean I do believe that um, to a significant degree a lot of it is generated through um, identification over identification with established traditional authorities unquestioning mm. uh, following of um, preset uh, tenets and um, notions of humanity which Mm -hmm. to a degree have sort of run their course but um it's the unquestioning aspect which i think is at the core of it because suddenly one finds oneself um of value you are someone of value um you are as i said one of the elect one of the chosen one of Mm -hmm. the master race um one of the upper classes and um anything which threatens that which is a lot nowadays, <laughs> mm. um, anything which threatens that uh, must be attacked and will be attacked reflexively because that is where you are uh, fixed and where you see your family extending. Mm. And it affects people of all statuses. You know, little boy, you're a man. Little man, you're a king. Um, mm. So um, it, it's that battle for status and meaning. Um, and many people just take it off the shelf from the society in which they're born unquestioningly mm. and that's the yeah. key and your answer is empathy imagination human solidarity yeah and questioning mm. always yeah now where does this come from then this this commitment to questioning this is so your parents you say exposed you to mm. in in a, in a uh, well whether it's deliberate or just because they were like that to a diversity of opinions and experiences and cultures and art and so on and um, what about this this habit of questioning is this something that comes from your upbringing yes it does because <clears throat> the question of um, religion clearly mm. reared its head and um it's something that i entertained or tolerated until i was about 13 14 
And my dad, who I'd say was the lesser believer, he mm. offered us the option that um, uh, if you don't feel that you need to go to church anymore, then you don't have to. And of course, I leapt at the opportunity <laughs> because I was already, um, uh, I was a very serious reader, uh, <clears throat> a dangerously <laughs> serious right. reader <laughs> to an unhinged level for a young person. And, um, you know, I delved into the Bible and I'd read about you know, women being turned into pillars of salt mm -hmm. and um, all sorts of uh, disgraceful activities, uh, murderous, genocidal, yeah. racist, sexist, homophobic, horrible, horrible, horrible activities that were condoned, including slavery, mm. by uh, the creator of the universe. And I'm just thinking, nah. <laughs> I can't really co-sign this, <laughs> not with any good conscience. So, yeah, that's where it comes from, because um, I've spent a lot of time just uh, interrogating those texts and traditions, um, particularly as they have been imparted to, um, you know, my ancestors in the Caribbean, and how that all came about well, exactly. was of great interest to me, or concern, rather. <laughs> It's interesting that your criticism then of this of these uh, stories was a moral one. I mean, we've got we've had two types of people. I mean, first on this podcast, two types of people on this podcast who have been um, raised religious, and you'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't, at the number of them who first turned against these religious beliefs when they were thirteen or fourteen as a result of serious Ooh. reading. <laughs> a lot of them. This is true, um, but they sort of split into two camps. There's people who are like, and oh, I just couldn't believe it. You know, the the it was incredible. Of course, the universe couldn't be created that way. Of course, this thing couldn't be true because science. And then there's another group of people, which sounds like you're you're one of, saying, I read these things. I thought it was terrible. Slavery, the treatment of women, and it's sort of a, more the moral criticism that takes them away from the religion of their parents rather than the the rational one. Sounds like you were morally outraged by. Um, oh, these yes. religious stories, yes, yes, yes. I mean, I, I'm more than willing to believe that um, um, a 500 year old man built a wooden boat uh, to contain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can believe that. Sure, That's, why not? <laughs> I, I can be comfortable with that uh, scientifically, but uh, morally, it's totally dis disgusting, you know, drowning. Yeah. You know yeah, the entire population yeah. of the world, apart from eight people and yeah. um, a couple of uh, million animals. But yeah, to go back to your other point that you were about morality. I mean, yes. Ken Ham's argument wasn't about morality; it was about belief. It was about faith and yes. about obedience. And under, you know, as an obedient person, you have that sanction uh, to extend that authority into the world. So Ken Ham's argument about um, mm. it was coherent in a sense. For him, he really yeah. wasn't talking mm. about um, you know, morality. No. Mm. Are you a disobedient person? Good question. I'd like to think so. <laughs> We'd all um, like to be a bit. Uh, I'd like to think so. I don't know. I, I, I think I think I am in my own way. Mm. 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 But it's a good question. Mm. Well, it just occurred to me because you were sort of obedience is an interesting concept, actually. Um, I suppose. Did you ever feel that you were rebelling because you presented your upbringing as being mm -hmm. one where 
um, you really it sounds like in your life you've gone with the grain of what was offered to you when you were a child, you know, mm. because the diversity was there, it was valued, you were encouraged. But did you also rebel? Were there things you rebelled against? Uh, yes, that's natural. That's mm. inevitable. Um, just um, particularly religion. That was just something mm. I just could not go along with. And by extension, you know, just ideas of the status quo. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, but no, I wouldn't say I was majorly um, um, disobedient or rebellious. But, but you've criticised um, a number of times in what you've said here, sort of mm. tradition, inertia, yes. Um, yes. obedience. So it sounds mm -hmm. like implicit in quite a lot of what you've said is the idea that, you know... Opposition. In opposition okay. to, yeah, I'd say I'm mm. definitely in opposition to um, those three um, points that you raised. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, I have to be as well, simply to exist. I, I don't have that comfort zone in that triangle, <laughs> that trifecta. Yeah, this right, right. So that's interesting. You're outside of that to some extent. Mm -hmm. Willfully. Yeah. Willfully, but also mm. by upbringing and race and experience? Uh, yeah, or just I don't willfully. see a separation. I don't see a separation yeah. between them. You know, one leads to the other. Let's where where to I'm some... concerned, yeah. Yes, yes, quite. Let, let's come to something that has been also, together with archives, the thing that you've been most publicly known for, which, of course, is uh, the history of black people, especially in Britain. Mm. Um, and how did you first, uh, how did this first become a passion for you? Um, it became a passion because... Um, or two things. One, the lack of information about this subject. Mm. And um, by the history of black people, I'm, of course, um, I'm concerned about the histories before 1948 and the arrival yeah, exactly. of the Empire Windrush, which we're given to believe is <laughs> the um, start of multi-ethnic uh, Britain. Uh, mm. So I'm more interested in the histories uh, preceding that going back to the early 1500s, because, of course, it makes us ask, it prompts more challenging questions and more serious, and I think fun questions as well. It really opens up the subject of um, um, ethnic difference and uh, British culture and um, yeah. British history, black history, what it means to be black, what it means to be a British citizen. All of these things really um, are opened up once we start talking about um, the longevity of the multi-ethnic presence. So it was the absence of um, that sort of discussion and the feeble-mindedness which is always brought to black histories, you know, the sort of very narrow views of um, well, black identity mm. and black historical identity. I remember seeing in particular... Um, I was leafing through some um, a, um, a coffee table book of Hogarth's prints from um, the London in the 1730s, and I was struck by the presence of uh, people of African origin, people like myself, returning my gaze mm. in uh, these street scenes and of streets that I was familiar with, um, and. Um, I just wondered, who are these people? Why doesn't mm. anyone talk about them? Where do they come from? What are they doing? They don't look obviously enslaved. So what's their condition in <laughs> London in the 1730s? Yeah. I had to know more. And the more I found out, the more I realized there is to find out. It's a huge set of subjects. It's so interesting and stimulating, not just for the for its sort of 
on lesser known nature um but also because of the questions that it raises as a new frame through which to see the questions as as yes, as, as you say absolutely. i mean that's just yeah. i've i've been absolutely as someone who studied history at school and university um reading some of the works um about black people in british history that have come out in the last 20 years or so mm. it's just been fantastic it's been yeah. so nourishing as a sort of uh, as a way of yeah. looking at some of the societies mm. that you think you know pretty well in the past like yeah. for example britain in the age of enlightenment and, and just before um and i think so part of it just is your love of that right just your love of that intellectual and exciting yes activity um, yeah, very much so. And sharing it again, uh, yeah. often with people who have contrary views. Yeah, I mean, I so spent that's a good. lot of my practice in the, a lot of my <laughs> practice in the world of museums and um, heritage right. institutions and amongst their trustees <laughs> and donors. Right, right. And um, I think some of those have been some of uh, my most rewarding exchanges, um, seeing where they are coming from. Um, their reluctance to engage with some of these um, ideas and realities, I would say, yeah. historical realities. Um, because, again, it's more grist to my mill. But yeah. just keeping those conversations going is um, really worthwhile. Let's come to that then at the end, this work in um, heritage and in, in, in museums. Um, Museums and heritage, I guess, are a different sort of thing from archives. When you talked about the value of archives, you talked about um, the material and, and, and the enjoyment of engaging with it and also its its value in being able to be pointed to as facts and yes. artefacts and so on. Um, but museums, of course, are, are curated bits mm -hmm. from the past, aren't they? Yes. And ha has your work um, focused largely around the framing and curation of of items of our heritage or is it something else wow it's a huge amount of things that um i've done in and do in the sector um hmm. but um overwhelmingly and inevitably it is about um introducing elements and aspects of um the historical multi-ethnic presence mm -hmm. in um this uh, country's history actual objects um, or narrative both. Both. Both, okay. So it's um, um, you know, doing exhibitions, uh, so it's curating exhibitions, it's um, starting conversations about reframing various mm. people uh, who I'm not really at liberty to talk about right now. Well, mm. not yet. Oh, exciting <laughs> trailer, <laughs> potential <Yeah>. trailer. <laughs> um, and um, the, the issue with museums is, again, there's like the issue with um, archives is that they've sort of painted themselves into a corner um, which is that the stereotypical user um, or that constituency which is you know, stereotypically you know the museum going archive enjoying um, demographic of the um, mid to late uh, 60s early 70s um, white uh, couple um, outside of London, uh, museum visits um, are very, very few. And same with archive users. I mean, it's diminishing. And a lot of, especially in the archive world, a lot of the material which has been um, uh, um, entering public archives um, 
over the last, say, 30, 40 years, particularly in um, sit large cities and urban centers, has been specifically around um, non-white communities. So the whole idea of how is this information going to be used? Um, who is it ultimately for? Um, what do we do with that? How do we actually describe some of this information? <laughs> how do we pronounce some of these names at that basic <laughs> level? Th these are really serious issues. And with museums, it is um, about trying to give honest uh, representations of you know non-white communities throughout British history, or at least have that on the table as something which they will inevitably have to engage um, into engaging. You know, given you know the large numbers of uh, non-white uh, young people who are interested in um, history and discussions such as this, and I suppose going back to what you said earlier about encounter with difference, um, white people who go to museums who encounter these things as well, because this is doing a job of imaginative connection for everyone with everyone else, right? It is, and um, it's interesting. You know, you get you can imagine the divergent reactions from our white museum visitors. And um, there's a minority who don't and won't get it because there's, again, we're going back to how people um, find their comfort zones. And there is that traditional comfort zone of this set idea, fixed idea of Britishness, which is around uh, race mm. or even the having the right to... Um, validate and uh, have that authority over the historical narrative is seen mm. as something which is exclusively for uh, white British men. <laughs> mm. And um, having that challenged or even questioned um, is something that causes huge unease in some quarters. But the vast majority of people do engage with it. And even, you know, some of the most um, rewarding conversations I've had have been with uh, those who have been made uncomfortable by it. And, you know, they've been brought around to see that, yes, this is ultimately a positive and it will lead to collective longevity, <laughs> not just your own, mm. but also to the longevity of these institutions. History and common ownership, history is a framework for great arguments and ongoing engagement and exposure to as many diverse views and experiences as possible. S.I. Martin, thank you for telling us what you believe. Thank you. My pleasure, Andrew. That was S.I. Martin speaking for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanists UK, and this was the seventh episode of the fifth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanists UK or the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanists UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see there, please do consider joining as a supporter or member. You can also find out more about Humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available at all good bookshops. Mm -hmm.